As everyone around her became more aware of young Helena Petrovna's special powers, Helena herself came to feel that she had a mission. All at once, there was a moment of clarity, and she saw herself led by mysterious Oriental guides. of an unknown bright light. However this may be, this light has gradually been incorporated into me, has filtered into me. It has, as it were, pierced through me. And therefore I cannot help myself that all these ideas are coming to my brain, into the depth of my soul. I am sincere, although perhaps I may be wrong. A man named William Quan Judge, who was an occultist, an Irish-American, who had already become friends with Henry Steele Olcott and Blavatsky at this time period, that he was with Blavatsky one evening, and he picked up one of P.B. Randolph's books that an unnamed friend of Olcott had brought. So this guy, William Quan Judge, who was already hanging out with the two of them at that time, Henry Steele Olcott comes over Blavatsky's house. William Quan Judge is already there hanging out. And one of Olcott's friends brings a book of Pascal Beverly Randolph's. William picked the book up and just started reading through it casually. And here's his recounting of that. William Judge says, I was one day about four o'clock reading a book by P.B. Randolph that had just been brought in by a friend of Colonel Olcott. I was sitting some six feet distant from H.P. Blavatsky, who was busy writing. I had carefully read the title page of the book, but had forgotten the exact title. But I knew that there was not one word of writing upon it. As I began to read the first paragraph, I heard a bell sound in the air, and looking, saw that Madame Blavatsky was intently regarding me. What book do you read? she said. Turning back to the title page, I was about to read aloud the name, when my eye was arrested by a message written in ink across the top of the page, which a few minutes before I had looked at and found clear. It was a message in about seven lines, and the fluid had not yet quite dried on the page. Its contents were a warning about the book. I am positive that when I took the volume in my hand, not one word was written on it. Later, William Kwan Judge would backhandedly sort of slam Pascal Beverly Randolph, but also technically give him credit for being a forerunner to Madame Blavatsky, which is kind of interesting. This is from John Patrick Devenet's book as well. William Kwan Judge says later in 1889, since the founding of the Theosophical Society and the appearance of Isis unveiled, all these conditions have changed. 
If any had the patience and the hardihood to wade through the writings of P.B. Randolph, they might have discovered amid the ravings of sexual insanity, lucid passages that were indeed food for serious thought. In late 1875, Albert Pike writes a letter back home to his brother. The subject of the letter is about the growing popularity of Prince Hall masonry and how some Prince Hall masons were still trying to be accepted among the white men in Masonic lodges. This is what Pike had to say to his brother about that. He says, Our folks only stave off the question by saying that Negro masons are clandestine. Prince Hall Lodge was as regular a lodge as any lodge created by competent authority and had a perfect right as other lodges in Europe did to establish other lodges, making itself a mother lodge. That is the way the Berlin Lodges, the Three Globes, and Royal York became Grand Lodges. If that sounds hopeful, well, just wait for the second part. Pike continues, I think there is no middle ground between rigid exclusion of Negroes or recognition and affiliation with the whole mass. I am not inclined to meddle in the matter. I took my obligations to white men, not to Negroes. When I have to accept Negroes as brothers or leave masonry, I shall leave it. I am interested to keep the ancient and accepted rite uncontaminated in our country, at least by the leprosy of Negro association. So I would say maybe that was probably the most racist thing that Pike has ever said in any of the available writings that I've found of him. So to think that we're, you know, seven years out of the Civil War, Reconstruction is already sort of being fought against in all different ways, but it's happening. We're sort of, you know, trying to make an attempt to happen. Here's Albert Pike basically saying that one of his lifelong pursuits, Freemasonry. He was a Freemason for life. Albert Pike was a Freemason. That was his identity. A man named Robert Toombs once asked Pike, what is your reason for devoting yourself entirely to Masonry? Why don't you give it up? Go into politics. Make a reputation for yourself in the world. Pike said, I'll tell you why. I think I can do more good to the world as a Mason than I could in the Senate as a politician. I think you Senators and the men in the House are doing your very best to break up this union, and certainly Masons are not trying to do anything of the sort. Later, Robert Toombs said that he understood the meaning of Pike's statement after he became a Master Mason and a member of the Scottish Rite. He says of Pike, You were right, and I was not. My opinion now is that if a politician does any good in the world, it is when the Almighty makes him an unwilling instrument to effect some good. He was perfectly content being a Mason for life and dedicating his entire life to it. So to see him here saying, I took my obligation to white men, not to Negroes. When I have to accept Negroes as brothers or leave Masonry, I shall leave it. That's a pretty big statement. It's a pretty big statement. He's not saying anything about masonry itself being 
contaminated like the ideas of it becoming contaminated. It's just that he doesn't want black people to quote-unquote contaminate this sort of, I don't know, whites-only version of Freemasonry. And that's basically what he's saying. But ultimately, he's just saying, I'm not going to meddle in this. I'm not even going to... Because this is my position. Either it's all or nothing. Either we completely block Prince Hall Masons from integrating into our lodges in any way, or we fully accept them. And if we have to fully accept them, which we do one or the other, and that's the choice, then I'm out. I don't give a fuck about masonry. I'm doing something totally different. Um... That's a pretty big statement. Pretty big statement. Now, this also, to me, indicates that Albert Pike may have still been dabbling with or somehow involved with the Ku Klux Klan in some way, shape, or form. Maybe he wasn't, but evidence points to that he was involved somehow. There's even rumors that he wrote some of the Ku Klux Klan rituals and initiations. But the best pieces of evidence that we have so far that Albert Pike was potentially involved with the Ku Klux Klan is that his son provided a portrait for a book about the Ku Klux Klan written by author Susan Lawrence Davis. And this author included the portrait with permission from Pike's son who gave it to her referring to Pike as a member of the Ku Klux Klan. That Pike's own son would want Pike to be remembered this way, I think says a lot. So if it is made up, if it is not real history, it's strange that members of his own family would be keen and eager to present their father that way. I think that leans in the direction of it being very possible that Pike was indeed connected to the Ku Klux Klan. The second best evidence we have is that the man who grew up in Pike's house that still had some of his old books, apparently, some of his old possessions in there, this this man actually became a um, famous poet later in life. American poet John Gold Fletcher, after he grew up, he became you know a poet and a writer. He, uh, he became very interested in Albert Pike, even as a young man growing up in this famous writer's home. And at a certain point, he believed he could detect Pike's writing style, that if he was able to you know, read something without knowing it was Pike, he, he could really distinctly tell it was him. He had a very specific style. This poet who grew up in Albert Pike's home and learned a lot about Pike believes that a famous Ku Klux Klan poem is written by Albert Pike, and it was anonymously sent to a Santa Rosa newspaper. Those are the two best pieces of evidence we have. Other than that, I don't think any of the evidence is really that strong. But he was a Confederate general. He did still have very strong sympathies for the South. He does still hold very strong racist views even after the Civil War, during Reconstruction. He doesn't want black Masons in Masonry. And if black Masons get integrated into Masonry, he's gone. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it at all. That's a little bit more racist than things I've been reading you from other politicians, even, you know, ones who had shitty views on race, like Lincoln. You know, he backpedaled on a lot of his statements about what he thought about 
how black people should be equal. He would say, you know, something that sounded like he was an abolitionist and he believed in equal rights. And then the next time he would say like, oh, no, 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 I don't think black people are actually like equal to white people. No, I wasn't saying that. No, no, no. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that, you know, they should have some more rights than they do. You know, let's give them a little bit more. So it's, it's kind of like that. But Pike here is expressing something pretty strong. But from the book, The Valley of the Craftsman, The Pictorial History, it's kind of a nice coffee table book about the Scottish Rite. On page 105 of this book, they show a Prince Hall Masonic Lodge and a Prince Hall Mason standing outside. The picture is probably unrelated to the caption, but interestingly, it says in the caption that Albert Pike gave copies of morals and dogma all around the country to Prince Hall Lodges. That he was really trying to push morals and dogma on Prince Hall Lodges. And when he gave copies of morals and dogma out to these Prince Hall Lodges, he didn't just send them to the mail. Pike actually, during the mid-1870s, was still doing advocacy for the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction. He was actually borrowing money from the Scottish Rite at this time, almost like a bank, and using it to travel to push advocacy for the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite. And by doing this, he would also bring copies of Morals and Dogma and give them out to different blue lodges, to different lodges, Prince Hall lodges, apparently. There are some rumblings in the mid-1870s that the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite was going to be taken over somehow by the northern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite. There was tensions, you know, still flaring up even after the Civil War, like a little mini, wait, are we going to have to, you know, battle our northern counterparts again? There was there was that still in the air, not like, are we going to have another Civil War, like across the country again, but more like these tensions were never really fully resolved. So it became a little bit of a heated thing and a little bit of a panic thing where Pike and the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite, they agreed with Pike that that's that they needed to do something to prevent it essentially from happening to strengthen their you know ground troops their their masons all across the country this different scottish right lodges all across the country and sort of get them you know armored up in case something happened now what was going to happen who the fuck knows maybe some kind of coup i don't know what they're actually worried about was going to happen there was just talk and fears that this was going to happen But I think another question we need to ask is, how did Pike not know about Pascal Beverly Randolph by this point in time? He was a very savvy individual. He kept aware of almost any fraternity, any fraternal body, any secret society that was around at the time. And just to give you an example of which secret societies were around at this time, in the mid-1870s, from Freemason's Monthly Magazine, in this time period, there's an article that says secret societies. There's a multiplicity of secret societies which have sprung up among us within the last few years and with which the country is literally deluged. At the head of this list stands masonry and this is followed as its associates and peers. Odd Fellowship, Knights of the Pythias, Redmanship, Ancient Order of Foresters, Improved Orders of Redmen, Order of United American Mechanics, Kesher Shell Barzil, Good Templars, Sons of Temperance, Cadets of Temperance, the Athenaeum, Independent Order of Wood Rangers, Silver Star Social Club, Imperial Club, Mary Three. 
The following remarks from an address by M.W. Brother Dodds, Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Ohio, will not be out of place in this connection. He says, The present state of the public mind in regard to secret societies is unprecedented, and their popularity unparalleled in the history of this country. And yet, strange to say, it is but a few years since they were an abomination and a stench in the public nostrils. He's referring to the anti-Masonic era. So, of course, Pike was aware of all these other secret societies if they were being written about in Masonic Monthly Magazine. So, was he also aware of people like Blavatsky? Apparently, at this time, he was actually in touch with Helena Blavatsky, according to René Guenois around this time. What was he in touch with her about? I don't know. But René Guenois says that he probably eventually realized that she was a fraud and stopped talking to her. So I guess the implication is that she reached out to him, maybe mining him from information, and then he just cut off all contact. That's the only reference I've ever seen of him and Blavatsky interacting. But Pascal Beverly Randolph started the first Rosicrucian Lodge that we know of in the United States, technically. So how did Pike not know about PBR at this point if Pike was already kind of secretly into studying Rosicrucianism? Maybe something that he didn't really make as public as his Zenda Vista, Rig Veda writings. Because the Rose Cross degree is kind of almost a red herring in the Scottish Rite degrees. Uh, for people trying to attain Rosicrucian knowledge in the Scottish Rite, you could almost argue that that might have been an intentional head fake because it relates back to the name of one of the first Rosicrucian societies, apparently, that ever formed, that somehow has to do with Rosicrucian. Well, apparently it doesn't. Apparently the Knight of the Sun degree in Morals and Dogma has a deep Rosicrucian meaning to it. But let's go back to this idea that Albert Pike heavily plagiarized Eliphas Levi. Eliphas Levi also connects to Pascal Beverly Randolph. Pascal Beverly Randolph is already connected in some kind of, some loose way with Blavatsky. She's influenced by him. Olcott is reading his books. Blavatsky's apparently talking to Pike. Blavatsky's already clearly influenced by Albert Pike. Mueller connected Blavatsky and Pike via the Aryan deities connection the Aryan race. They were both heavily studying that. Cogliostro connected Blavatsky and Pascal Beverly Randolph in terms of their practical magic interests. Rosicrucianism, alchemy, hermeticism, and even arguably Freemasonry connected them all. Pascal Beverly Randolph's new society that he formed after the Brotherhood of Ulysses, which was another failure, According to all accounts of it, it barely existed for more than a few months. Even though it was the core to the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Even though the Brotherhood of Ulysses was sort of the backbone of what the Brotherhood of Luxor became. In February 1875, Pascal Beverly Randolph, who called himself the refounder, organizer, and supreme hierarch of the triplicate order Rosicrucia, Pythiani and Ulysses. And he actually made a constitution for this organization. John Devonay says it's almost pathetic of how overly grandiose Randolph's ideas were in here. But, you know, 
kind of admire that. I don't really see that as pathetic. I think of that as kind of, it's kind of cool. Shoot for the moon. Why not? Why not? Randolph was on fucking fire. Randolph uses a bunch of quotes kind of remixed for the preface to this constitution. Randolph says in the constitution, which looks kind of like a Masonic pyramid chart of some kind. Uh, the charter of the triplicate order here actually comes from the Livingston Masonic Library. It looks like a basically a completely Masonic document. If you want to see what it looks like. Just look at the charter of the triplicate order to see how Masonic this is. Randolph says in the Constitution, We accept truth wherever found, and among others, those evolved by the brethren of the Rosea Cruce in all lands, but as their knowledge and procedures in their search of truth and the attainment of the maximum of individual human power, spiritual insight, and intellectual strength, are not adapted to the present age. We accept their interpretations as laid down in the books written by our brother, the Hierarch, who therein has given mankind the cream of the writings of the ancient brethren and evolved hundreds of new truths from his own mentality by aid of the philosophic and scientific resources of the 19th century. Wherefore, we cut loose from India, Siam, Egypt, Arabia, Chaldea, Syria, Germany, England, France, and Greece, and on these shores found a new temple for a thousand years to bear the proud and imperial name of Eulis, and we disclaim all allegiance to any other order or fraternity on earth, and we hold all other claimants to Rosicrucianism as frauds and impostors. Randolph noted that the original Rosicrucian group was founded in one degree only, he claims. But in actuality, John Devonay says that three degrees were actually conferred there. What really happened here is Randolph was actually trying to retcon things a little bit. Originally, this was just the Rosicrucian order, but now he added the Pythiane and Ulysses to this. This is all combining it all together, apparently. It's like he's sort of mashing up the Brotherhood of Ulysses with his original Rosicrucian group, which already had three degrees when it was originally formed, whatever those actual degrees were, no one really knows for sure, with Pythiane, a new form of magic that he wanted to include in this. So what happened was the original Rosicrucian society that he formed had three degrees. But since now there were sort of three different parts to this new society he was doing, you have to actually only do one degree one for Rosicrucianism, another, a second one for Pythiane, and a third one for Ulysses. So it's folding all the degrees from the first Rosicrucian society into a single degree, and then two new degrees, essentially. Structurally, the triplicate order was to be organized in each state under a grand lodge or temple, with subordinate lodges within the state to be called Guilds of Ulysses. The order was open to both sexes and in fact required that each office or function be held by both a man and a woman of equal rank. And Randolph was careful to state that nothing is ever said or done in our lodges that could paint a blush upon a child or even an angel's cheek. So he's basically trying to make sure that people know that there's not going to be any fucking done in these rituals, not going to be any sex magic done in these rituals. Um, but there will be equal amount of men and women in the lodge. It's kind of designed to keep this sort of equal female and male energy, you know, that was really important to Randolph alive. 
The actual ceremony of what these lodges are supposed to be, John Devonay says, seems perfunctory at best. A member entering the lodge room was to bow to the master with outstretched arms, and then with the right hand touch the forehead and then the chin, as if stroking the beard, then drop the arm and repeat the WH, to which the GM answers AH. Now just, I'll read to you some of the actual positions in these lodges. Supreme Grand Master, Supreme Grand Dome, Supreme Grand Warden, Supreme Grand Key, Supreme Grand Door, Supreme Grand Guard, Supreme Grand Hierarch. John Devonay says that Randolph's primary concern in the constitution of the triplicate order was to ensure that his infant son was cared for after his death. The Supreme Hierarch had the right to nominate his successor, and Randolph nominated his son, Osiris Buddha. The only being now on earth who by organization is capable of wholly entering the Pentralia, an esoteric realm of the Ulean system. Thank you for listening to this preview clip of the Media Roots radio series, The Freemasonic History of the United States, Part 7, titled Masonic Rosicrucianism, Hermetic Theosophy, Blavatsky, and Pascal Beverly Randolph. The full episode is eight hours and nine minutes long. And right now the series is about 30 hours long. If you'd like to get access to the entire episode and the full series, you can do so by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash Thanks.